Welcome to this sermon from Silver Lake Baptist Church. Our mission is to celebrate the greatness of God with all we are for the joy, hope, and renewal of our community. We are so glad you have chosen to listen to our message. We pray you will be blessed by your time with us today. Failure. What is it? We usually think of it as lack of success or not meeting an intended objective. We don't like it. We usually say things like, failure is not an option. But doesn't failure happen all the time? I know that I've failed in many ways on many different occasions. Hopefully this morning's message won't be a failure. (laughs) But I believe that God, most of all, wants us to learn from our failures. So if I do fail this morning, it'll be okay with me if you learn from my failure. (laughs) Okay. So I heard something the other day that intrigued me just by its title, The Museum of Failure. Have you heard of this? Its abbreviation is MOX, Museum of Failure. Okay. So I looked it up on the internet and I found a few of its exhibits and I thought, I thought of some others too. And so here's a few, here are just a few of the products that fail. The first one is a classic, right? The Ford Edsel, 1958. Ford put a ton of money and energy into designing this car only to see it fail. One of its points of failure that um, I didn't realize was that the push button, the gear shift is in the middle of the steering wheel. You know, that seems like a decent, an okay place for my, uh, you know, turning my radio volume up and down, but changing gears, not so much. That's a failure. The next one, Betamax, 1975. Sony developed this video format in competition with VHS tapes. It failed. Another, another one, video format, Laserdisc. The one on the side here, this is, a, this is like a DVD size. So this thing is, you know, it's 12 inches. Uh, the size of an LP record album. Wait, what was that? Oh, no, it failed too. Here's, here's another classic. New Coke. Remember that? It's, yeah. It's from a while ago, 1985. Here's one. Some failures seem obvious right from the beginning. Right? What? Another 1985. Colgate selling beef lasagna. I just don't get that. Okay. Here's, a, here's a one. This is the Apple Newton in 1993. This was way before iPads and iPhones. It was very expensive. Did not work well. Fail. Of course, not all failures are recent. This one is from a couple centuries ago. Do you remember who invented the first steamboat? Robert Fulton, that's right, in 1807. But you, that's, wrong, that's not right, because it was really some relative of mine. John Fitch invented the first true steamboat in 1787. It looked like this. It did not succeed. <laughs> so Robert Fulton invented the first successful steamboat. <laughs> And last, here is a gadget being sold today that is inexplicable to me. me. The Franklin Pocket King James Version Electronic Bible. Holy Bible, excuse me. I've seen it advertised on TV even. I found this 
on Amazon for $293. <laughs> it's got three whole lines of text. <laughs> it's like something from 30 years ago. But for way less than that, you can get a tablet. You can get something like this. It's big. Every Bible version you can think of. Most of them for free. Plus it does all kinds of other stuff too. This is a fail. (laughs) Failure. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you, your love never fails us. I thank you that even though we fail all the time, that you never do. And Lord, as we're going to see today, failure sometimes in the eye of the beholder. And I, I thank you that you have, you allow failure in our lives to uh, bring glory to you and help us to learn stuff. We want to, that's what we want to do this morning. We want to learn stuff, stuff. And we need your spirit to help us do that. So please, Holy Spirit, open our eyes and our ears and speak to us through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. So remember, Paul's on his second missionary journey. He's got Silas with him from the church in Jerusalem. He's got Timothy from the church in Lystra. Got a map of his journey. They've traveled somewhere. It's coming. There it is. Right, we're down there in the Middle East. They've traveled all across Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and crossed the Aegean Sea into Macedonia, which is modern-day Greece. They started a church in Philippi. Paul cast a demon out of a fortune-telling slave girl, and her owners were furious at their loss of revenue. So they grabbed Paul and Silas and threw them, brought them before the city leaders who flogged them and threw them in jail. But God rescued Paul and Silas from the jail. He also rescued the jailer and his family. Right? He, got, he, he was saved. They were saved. But Paul and his companions still had to leave town. And that's where we pick up the narrative in verse 1. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So here's a map, again, to show... So there they are up in Philippi. They traveled through these two little places on the way to Thessalonica. Um, it's about 100 miles, that trip, and Amphipolis and Apollonia are cities along the way. The road that Paul, Silas, and Timothy followed is called the Via Ignatia, a major Roman road. Apparently they left Luke there in Philippi to help the new Philippian church. So verse 2, and according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures. So you remember how Paul has done this ever since he became a believer. He's gone into the synagogue first in Damascus as a brand new Christian. He did that in Salamis and Cyprus, in Pisidian Antioch, in Iconium. These are places down in uh, southern Turkey today. Verse 3 explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus who I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. So Luke's just kind of giving a summary of Paul's message. It's the essence of the gospel. There's a more complete version that, that uh, we read earlier in Acts thirteen twenty six. 
Paul's message goes like this. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family, speaking to the Jews, and those among you who fear God. Those are the Gentiles. To us, this message of salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and the rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. That's the kind of thing that that he would say to the congregation in the uh, synagogue. Verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. So when it says some of them were persuaded, it means some of the Jewish people in the synagogue. And when it says the God-fearing Greeks, it's talking about the Gentiles that came to the synagogue. A number of the leading women, it means, literally, it says not a few prominent women. And when it says we're persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, it means they became Christians. This is a great start for the church in Thessalonica. And so this whole time frame that we're talking about, it says three Sabbaths, but it was really more than three weeks, probably several weeks. And during that time, Paul worked at his secular secular job of making tents during the week to support himself. And that's we don't see that in Acts, but we see it in 1 Thessalonians 2.9. Paul says... For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. So there's my first point. Sharing the gospel often goes hand in hand with working for a living. The term tent making is used today in the mission field to describe a missionary that's not primarily supported financially by a mission agency. Like Paul, they use their own trades or professions to support themselves. Tent makers do cross-cultural full-time ministry. They reach out to people in their workplace and during their free time. They're not second-rate witnesses or lone rangers. And there's, there's a number of practical reasons for tent making in the world today. Tent makers can gain access into gain entry into restricted access countries. So places where missionaries are not allowed, um, tent makers can go there because they, maybe they're engineers or, or agriculturalists or um, lots of other kinds of doctors, nurses. Second, tent makers can serve in needy open countries. Tent makers can reduce or alleviate the cost of missions because they're, they're paying their own way. For the most part, tent makers can reduce the missionary attrition rate because they're doing more than they're doing more than one thing. Tent makers are ideal for sending new sending countries. So countries, new sending countries is something you might not have thought of before. But places like Brazil now sends out gobs of missionaries. And it's a great way um, for them to be able to do that, not uh, not as you know, formal missionaries supported by a mission agency, but again, as these tent makers. 
And finally, today's international job market is a powerful argument for tent making. There's lots of jobs to be had. I mean, teaching English is a classic that people do and make, make their living doing that and, and can you know, still share Christ in their off hours and, and where they work. So back to, our, back to our text, verse 5. But the Jews, becoming jealous... Oh, wait, stop. These are the Jews who did not believe. They were envious of Paul's success and angry about the large numbers of men and women that chose to follow Christ. Remember, this has happened before. Acts thirteen forty-five. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. So back to verse 5. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring, out, bring them out to the people. Wow. They brought some ne'er-do-wells from the bad part of town, form a mob and start a riot. Ay ay. Wait, who is Jason? Well, he's a new believer whose house these guys were staying at. So verse 6, when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren out before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. But Paul wasn't there. So they dragged out Jason and some fellow believers and started making accusations to the authorities. The mob was basically leveling three charges. Charge one. These guys are troublemakers. Maybe they'd heard from someone in Philippi about their arrest and imprisonment. But it sounds to me more like the pot calling the kettle black. Who's making trouble? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. The second charge. Jason has been harboring these Jewish agitators. Yeah, we call that one guilt by association. (laughs) They, They were staying at his house. Charge three. They are fomenting insurrection. They're trying to start a rebellion against Caesar to set up a new king, Jesus. This was a charge that the authorities had to pay attention to. But because in some ways it had some truth to it. Jesus is the king, but his kingdom is not of this world. So verse 8, they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. They got the whole crowd of onlookers angry as well as the officials. In verse 9, and when they'd received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. A pledge? What's that? It's like a jail bond. Jason had to deposit money as a promise that Paul and Silas wouldn't cause trouble and that they would leave town immediately. Otherwise, the bond would be forfeited. This was kind of letting them off lightly, since if the mob had found them, much worse things would probably have happened. And it seems like the city authorities understood at least a little of who was making these accusations. Who were the troublemakers, really? But that's, then my, that's my second point. Sharing the gospel often goes hand in hand with opposition. This was really serious opposition. And we don't see that too much in this country, but in other parts of the world, it's extremely common. Not so much for visitors and tourists, but for natives that live there, sharing Christ can be very costly. 
even more than it was for the Apostle Paul. So in verse 10, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So the new church sent Paul and Silas off by night to the city of Berea, about 60 miles to the west. They'd been chased out of town again. The rest of that verse, away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. That's where Paul always starts out, the Jewish synagogue. Does it again. Verse 11. Now these, these Jews uh, in the synagogue were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. These people were different. They listened closely and then verified what Paul had told them by comparing it with scripture. And they were doing this every day, not just once a week on Saturday. They were serious. This kind of inquiry would have looked quite different than it does today. Probably there was only one copy of the scriptures. So they would take turns reading from it out loud and then discussing what they read. Very different than, say, when I study scripture by myself in front of a computer with a stack of books beside me. But the point is that this is a critically important part of living the Christian life evaluating things we see and hear against the standard of God's word. That's my third point. How can we know whether something is true? Examine the scriptures daily. It's not just once in a while thing. It's not even just once a week. Proverbs 2, verse 1 through 5. My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, Make your ear attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. And here's some other verses that contrast the two different groups of Jews, the ones in Thessalonica and Berea. In Psalm 1, 1 through 3. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. This is... This verse that we just read in, uh, in Acts 17.11 is, is probably a favorite part of this section because these guys received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were true. And what was the result of their eagerness in examining the scriptures daily? Verse 12, Therefore many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men, even more of the Jews believed and became Christians with many other Gentiles, both women and men. And, and Luke here is really making a point that many important or prominent women believed. It reminds me of Matthew thirteen twenty three, where Jesus is explaining the parable of the sower. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who 
indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Verse 13, but when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Wow, again, they really hated Paul. In truth, they hated Christ. They took it out on Paul. Verse 14, then immediately the brethren sent Paul to go as, as far as the sea. And Silas and Timothy remained there. Verse 15. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. So again, the new church sent Paul away with an escort, this time to Athens, several hundred miles to the south, probably by ship. Got a map. Athens, it's a ways away. All right. Then, then they left him there in Athens so that they could go get Silas and Timothy. So if we look at Paul's time in Macedonia with the world's eyes. What do we see? Failure. He hadn't got to spend more than a few weeks in any city. He'd been thrown in prison. He'd barely escaped more than once. He was chased out of town after town. People hated him and went out of their way to try to make him give up. Is that how Paul saw it? Is that how God sees it? No. Let me read some of a letter Paul wrote to the new Christians in Thessalonica just a few months later. 1 Thessalonians 1. Paul and Silvus, that's Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor and love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of God our Father, knowing, brethren beloved by God, his choice of you, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation and with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come and then a little later in 1st Thessalonians 2:13 for this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us you accepted it not as the word of men but for what it really is the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. That doesn't sound like failure to me. My fourth point and last point, God can use what looks like failure in mighty ways. How often the world judges wrongly. Just like the Bereans, we as believers need to measure success or failure 
against what God says in his word, not against the world's standards. I have a challenge for you this week. Chances are you're going to have dinner with your family on Thanksgiving, and chances are some of your family are not yet believers in Christ. I challenge you to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. Not in a pushy, annoying way or an argumentative, confrontational way, but in love, guided by the Holy Spirit. So often the people we love the most are the hardest to share with. The challenge is for myself, too. Let's not miss the opportunity while we still have it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you for the place that you've given us to live, the freedoms that we have. I thank you for your love for us. We thank you for this example of what looks like failure, but you can, t- the way you turn failure into your glory is amazing. And I pray that, that you would do that in our lives as well. Things that we think of as failure or that seem to be to the world failure, use those to make us more like your son. That's what we want. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, check out our website at www.silverlakebaptist.com dot o r g